Before we begin today, I want to say how grateful we are to the patrons who support the podcast on Patreon. We are paying to produce this content ad-free out of our own funds, helped only by your donations. We're still short of our goal to make us revenue neutral, and we'd be grateful for anything you can contribute. One of my favorite political theories of all time is from Yale professor Stephen Skaronik. He has a theory that he calls political time. I'm Rob Cohen, physician, army veteran, scientist, and your host. This is Democrises. Democracy, demography, and demoralization. Political time. Political time. From Yale professor Stephen Skaronik. Political time. What he means by this is that in the American body politic, there is a natural life cycle of any great new ideology, which lasts about a half century and goes through a three-phase boom-and-bust transformation. The phases embodied by three presidents of the same party, who are the main characters in our story. These three characters are the founder, the divider, and the declinist. The founder ushers in a prosperous and wonderful new era, solving a great major crisis in the process, and everybody believes his ideology has come to save the day, and the country falls in love with him. What people miss is that his ideology may be appropriate for the time, but it may not be appropriate for another point in political time. And because even the founder is human, the country eventually gets sick of him and his cronies and votes his party out of power. But the perceived greatness and success of his ideology becomes a dominant ideological headwind for the next few decades of American political life. The other party often finds that their ideology cannot overcome the residual allegiance in the country to the founder's great success, with the population mistakenly assuming that his ideology was imbued with timeless wisdom, so presidents of the opposition party merely serve to fill time between the arc of the three main characters, who are all presidents from the founder's party. For a recent example with events fresh in our collective memories, we are living today in the Reagan era the era where small government is assumed to be the default best position because Reagan solved a great national crisis of too much government by giving us small government. So in the Reagan era, the founder is Ronald Reagan, the divider is George W. Bush, and the declinist is Trump. Democratic presidents Clinton and Obama had the unfortunate luck of having to be president inside the Reagan era and therefore governing under those constraints. All three main characters in this arc, Reagan, W. Bush, and Trump, tried to implement very similar ideological programs. Think of tax cuts, anti-intellectualism, and a hawkish foreign policy. But because of changing political time, Policies that made sense under Reagan made less sense under George W. Bush 20 years later and almost no sense under Trump 20 years after that. But let's flesh out 
the characteristics of our three archetypes, the founder, the divider, and the declinist. The founder sweeps into office on the back of a national crisis. That's important. A crisis always marks the end of one arc and the opportunity for a new founder to begin a new era with an ideology appropriate to confront the challenges of the day and the nation finally ready to accept a new ideology. The problem is his ideas start to age and 20 years later, another president from the same party tries to recreate what the founder did. But while it may have made sense 20 years ago, the world has changed, and so implementing these same policies creates problems, including divisions in the country and even in his own party. That's why this character is called the divider. He rules under very divisive times. Once his results get bad enough, the other party gets a turn again, but they again become frustrated as they realize they are still legislating within the constraints of the founder's residual goodwill. With the country suffering, a declinist from the founder's party charges into office, promising a return to American glory by recapitulating the founder's now deified ideology. Unfortunately, political time has advanced so far and the nation's environment has changed so much that these ideas are now wholly out of date and either precipitate or exacerbate a new national crisis. Only then does a new founder get a chance to implement the medicine the country needs for the new political time, America falls in love with him, and the cycle begins anew. So how has this played out in the history of the American presidency? Let's start at the very beginning with the founding fathers. George Washington was obviously the first founder, with the Revolutionary War being the first crisis, and he helped launch the American Republic. It did not take long until his vice president, John Adams, led the country into very divisive times, including the Alien and Sedition Acts, which made it a crime to make false statements that were critical of the federal government. The election of 1800 was a brutally divisive affair, with Jefferson alleging that Adams wanted to restore the monarchy, and Adams alleging that if Jefferson were elected, rape and murder would be taught in public schools. That's not an exaggeration. The election ended with a victory for Jefferson's party, the Democrat-Republicans, but the party split between Jefferson and Burr because the Electoral College back then was even more moronic than it is today, with each elector casting two votes for president, so if they all vote down party lines, there will be a tie. There was a tie between Jefferson and Burr, and the contested election went to the House of Representatives where it took 36 ballots to finally elect Jefferson. So Adams earns the title of the divider. Eventually, the founder's regime ended in disgrace with the presidency of John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams. He was only elected to the presidency after the disputed election of 1824, in which Andrew Jackson won a plurality of both the Electoral College and the popular vote, but the so-called corrupt bargain between Adams and House Speaker Henry Clay made Quincy Adams president. The impotent Adams administration and the appearance of aristocratic elitism so enraged the masses that universal white male suffrage was demanded and passed in most states, causing a great political crisis in the country. This crisis of 1824 gave way to the next founder, Andrew Jackson, and the cycle began again. Jackson's ideology would be one of white populism and states' rights. 
All founders have a great signature issue for which we remember them, which epitomizes their ideology. And for Andrew Jackson, it was the dispute over the National Bank. Jackson hated the bank. He viewed it as a symbol of aristocratic arrogance. So he set out to destroy it. And in its place, he tried to set up a banking system with a bunch of local banks in which he would put national money based on political favoritism. Well, as you might imagine, that was a terrible idea and among other things caused the panic of 1837, a widespread economic crisis in the country. In doing so, he and his successor embarrassed his party so much in the eyes of the country that, as tends to happen, the other party got a chance. Unfortunately, Whig President William Henry Harrison died of pneumonia 31 days after inauguration and his successor, John Tyler, had so much trouble passing legislation in a country still gripped by Jackson's populist ideology, he was eventually abandoned by his own party. This pattern will repeat many times later. Presidents of the era's opposition party, the party that opposes the founder, often don't realize that they are trying to push against the winds of political time, the inertia from the founder's regime. So their impotence usually means the Founders' Party gets another turn 20 years later in political time. And in this case, that's James K. Polk. So then the Democrats get another chance. This is the divider. So the second guy is the guy who tries to adhere to the ideology of the founder. But there are issues. The ideology is no longer appropriate. New problems have arisen. So adhering to a 20-year-old ideology may not be appropriate and actually always leads to fissions within the dominant regime. And so each of the stories we'll talk about, there is a major issue of the time and there are fissions that erupt within the own party. James K. Polk wins a narrow election. Dividers usually win a narrow election. Think of 2000, George W. Bush as a divider. And the big issue that Polk had to confront was slavery's expansion. Remember, Jackson was all about states' rights, okay? But the problem with states' rights is if you get new states, that might mean slavery's expansion. And the Democratic Party was heavily divided between Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats who felt very differently about slavery's expansion. So the issue of Texas and its annexation to the Union was even so toxic, not even Andrew Jackson wanted to touch it. Polk tried to balance all the factions. So he had problems. There was the Texans who were Americans illegally settling in Texas. It eventually caused the outbreak of the Mexican-American War. Then there were tension with Britain over the Oregon Territory. The United States wanted all of Oregon, which goes all the way up into the middle of what is now British Columbia, the 54th parallel. And so there was a phrase, 54-40 or fight. Eventually, Polk avoided war with Britain by agreeing to compromise on the 49th parallel, which is the modern-day boundary between Washington and British Columbia. But at the time, there was going to be potentially a war with Britain and Mexico. Additionally, other Democrats, Northeast Democrats, wanted a high tariff, and Southern Democrats wanted a low tariff, and Northwest Democrats, what is now the Midwest, wanted internal improvements, essentially infrastructure on the Mississippi River. And Polk is trying to balance all these things. And he almost wins. He almost succeeds. They win the Mexican-American War. They win Texas. They get peace with Oregon. They manage to balance that. But Polk made one mistake. He vetoed the internal improvement bill. And he vetoed it because Jacksonians hated the federal government so much that they didn't want to see federal money spent on state-level infrastructure projects. So it was a perfect example of how adhering to the ideology of the founder was no longer appropriate. In doing so, he pissed off the Midwest Democrats who were anti-slavery and it caused a rupture in the Democratic Party. There was a split between Van Buren and Polk, just like later splits between Teddy Roosevelt and Mark Hanna or between McCain and Bush. 
By the way, the divider tends to have little wars, what Skoranek calls little wars of dubious provocation. The Mexican-American War, the Iraq War, the Vietnam War, uh, these are all little wars that dividers do. So Polk divided the country, and the Whigs got another chance, but under Taylor and Fillmore, they largely failed, and the Democrats came back into office under Franklin Pierce, determined not to let slavery destroy their party. And yet, slavery immediately became the most important issue during Pierce's administration, as the question was raised, how would the Kansas-Nebraska Territory be settled? Remember the Kansas-Nebraska Act? What was the Kansas-Nebraska Act? Now again, remember we got new territories. Remember Texas and Oregon during Polk? This is the issue of popular sovereignty. So Pierce comes into the presidency. He's a Democrat. And he says, we're not going to let slavery's expansion break up our party. And then immediately the Democrats push slavery's expansion and break up the party. And that's the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 during the Pierce administration, in which they are going to say, like, how are we going to decide whether there's slavery here or not? The slave owners wanted popular sovereignty. The North said no more slavery's expansion. And this eventually led to a total rupture within the Democratic Party. The Kansas and Nebraska states were formed. One was a slave state, one was not. And this led to the expansion of slavery and the ratcheting up of the massive simmering tension in the country over slavery's issues. Slavery caused the breakup of the Democratic Party. So the Democrats scapegoated Pierce, dumped him at the 1856 convention, and replaced him with Buchanan. Buchanan then did not manage it any better, and once Lincoln got elected, actually let the southern states secede. And many people think Buchanan's the worst presidency in history because he basically let the states secede without doing anything about it. And so Lincoln rides into office, the new founder, and he has to deal with this great crisis of seven states having already seceded by the time he took office. Whereas Jackson's ideology was populism and white nationalism, Lincoln's is appropriate for the new challenges of the time, which is freedom. So he frees the slaves, but he also frees the economy. He pushes infrastructure bills. Remember Polk vetoed the infrastructure bill? He pushes the Homestead Act where new farmers could get new land in the West and farm it and generate economic growth. He pushed tariffs, which allowed the development of industry in the Northeast. So all of the big industry that would eventually become a problem under Roosevelt, all that great prosperity was due to the Lincoln tariffs and the Republican tariffs that would protect the development of industry over the next 40 years. And that's the lesson of this whole story. Certain policies might be appropriate for challenges at one time and then totally inappropriate for challenges at the other time. And that's the difference between good policy and bad policy. So let's talk more about Lincoln. So Lincoln, we talked about his ideology. We talked about his signature initiatives that show that ideology. But always that ideology of the founder creates a new problem. Because it solves an old problem, but it creates a new problem. And now the new problem is labor versus capital. The things that erupted under Teddy Roosevelt, what the Lincoln policies and the subsequent Republican administration's policies generated was massive new industries. That pure laissez-faire economics leads to monopolies and inequality, massive inequality, suffering of the lower classes while the robber barons ran wild. And the reason Teddy Roosevelt is so special, and we'll come back to Teddy, is he didn't make any of the same mistakes that the other dividers did. The reason I think Teddy Roosevelt's so special, because he was confronted with the same problem, major divisions within his own party, major divisions in the country, events like the Pennsylvania coal strike that we talked about, or the Colorado labor wars, in which there were actually bombs set off by the unions against the strike breakers and the, coal, the mine owners in Telluride, Colorado. 
Teddy Roosevelt was confronted by the same problems as all these other guys, but he managed it differently. And he did a better job and he got lucky. He understood you can't just do policies that made sense 40 years ago. You have to change. You have to break up the trusts. No other Republican would have broken up the trusts like he did. And what's also interesting about the Teddy Roosevelt and John McCain analogy is at both times, the Democrats thought the solution to this was pushing socialism. William Jennings Bryan was almost a socialist and the actual socialist party won 6% of the vote in the 1904 election under Eugene Debs. And um, and now we have socialist Bernie Sanders trying to answer in the Democratic Party with socialism. It just doesn't work. The founders were all kind of lucky. They all had a crisis to use to do things. Roosevelt would have been – any other – a lesser man would have been trapped by the ideology of the time. Roosevelt defeated it. But yes, as we talked about earlier, the Republican Party struck back. They got conservative again. They unleashed laissez-faire economics in the 1920s under Harding. Harding was arguably the most corrupt president in American history. Coolidge, they called him silent cow. Actually, conservatives today love him. They love Coolidge because he vetoed a lot of bills. He reduced spending. He said almost no words. And actually, he was criticized by Teddy Roosevelt's daughter for not saying anything. They called him silent cow. And so even today, the conservatives today attack Teddy Roosevelt because they side with Coolidge. They are stuck in this ideology. They think it's Democrat or Republican. They can't fathom the concept of like a moderate who would actually fix problems. And so the Hoover was the declinist. So Hoover, the Great Depression happens, the out-of-control, laissez-faire economics deregulation leads to a stock market out-of-control in the Great Depression, right? And the Republicans have no clue how to fix it. And so Hoover tries to increase the tariffs. And it just doesn't work. Not right for the times. It made sense under Lincoln 70 years before, but it doesn't make sense anymore. So now we have another major crisis. First, it was the Revolutionary War. Then it was the 1824 election political crisis. Then it was the existential crisis about slavery and the Civil War. And now we have another great national crisis, the Great Depression, which means it's time for the third arc's declinus to give way to a new founder. So now it's time for Franklin Roosevelt. Time for the third arc. Franklin Roosevelt is the third founder. Now, I would describe his ideology as liberalism or modern liberalism, sort of a government that solves problems. You know, they pass the New Deal. They intervene in World War II. There were a lot of conservatives in America that had America first. Remember that? They wanted to stay out of World War II. Charles Lindbergh was their leader. And Franklin Roosevelt was trying to push the United States to war, and he had challenges. He ran into uh, isolationism in America, but ultimately he did intervene in World War II. He did pass the New Deal and help get America out of this great national crisis. Now, unfortunately, as with the other two founders, his great success created new problems. Now there was an expectation that government would solve everything, that intervention always worked. The Korean War was another fairly successful incident. So after the Democrats get a long time and the Republicans take over in Eisenhower, now the Democrats come back in. It's time for the dividers turn again. It's JFK and LBJ. JFK wins a very narrow election in 1960, rife with corruption charges where they, they win by one state. If they hadn't won the state of Illinois, they would have lost. Dividers tend to win very narrow elections. Think George W. Bush's election in 2000 or James K. Polk's narrow win in 1844. There are great challenges, but nobody really knows what to do. So there's big division, there's big arguments over what to do. Some people want to do what worked 20 years ago. The other party wants to do something totally different. They blame the problems of the time on the current people. And the party, the regime, which is still the dominant ideology of the day, is split between the essentially the Roosevelt faction, the Teddy faction, and the Taft or Hanna faction, the Orthodox versus the Moderates. 
So LBJ tried to recapitulate the FDR administration's active government philosophy. And how did they do that? With the Vietnam War, with the Great Society, where they're passing all these new social welfare programs like Medicare, like the Housing and Urban Development, lots of government intervention, the Civil Rights Act, which, of course, eventually splintered the Democratic Party completely. Some of these made sense, but some of them caused new problems. Vietnam obviously wasn't quite as successful as World War II or Korea and caused the breakup and great division in the country. The Civil Rights Act caused great division in the country. There were riots in African-American areas, first in Harlem in 65, and then all over the country by 68. Detroit, Chicago, terrible riots. But then there was also a backlash in the South leading to the presidential nomination of George Wallace. So actually, the, the Democratic Party split into four groups. They split over two issues into four total groups. They split over the war, and they split over civil rights. And those four groups were... Um, the labor under Johnson, labor, labor unions under Lyndon Johnson, the anti-war intellectuals under Eugene McCarthy, the um, African-Americans under Bobby Kennedy and the Catholics, and the white nationalists uh, under George Wallace. So the country got very divided under LBJ because he tried to do the same things that FDR did, new government programs and a war, and it just didn't work as well. And inflation really got out of control during Johnson. So while unemployment came down, now all this new spending was leading to inflation, which was much less of a problem during FDR's time. So the Republicans get a chance under Nixon, and then it's time for the Democrat declinist, and that's Jimmy Carter. Now Jimmy Carter comes in, and he's again now Taxes are high, spending is high, and Carter's ideology has to, still has to basically adhere to the FDR model. So his, his answer to the challenges of the time was, the problem is not taxes and spending. The problem is we don't have smart enough people in government. I can make government work better. That's what he promised. Well, it didn't work. It didn't work. So stagflation, of course, is high inflation and high unemployment. You know, he talked about an economic malaise in the country. He was asked, how can we fix this? And he said, well, there are no easy answers. And that really led to basically the complete discrediting of modern liberalism, which is why liberal is still a dirty word today, because it was discredited under Carter when top marginal tax rate was 70 percent and it wasn't working. We were just we were had stagflation. And so now, just like Pierce was challenged 100 years ago for the nomination, Carter was challenged by another member of the own party for the 1980 nomination by Ted Kennedy. So that brings us to the end of the FDR era. So a new national crisis of stagflation and a discredited liberal regime means it's time for a new founder, which, of course, is Reagan. His ideology is appropriate for the challenge of the time, where he says government is not the solution to our problems, government is the problem. Another famous quote he has is, we want to check government spending and the Democrats want to spend government checks. And it really worked. So first thing, he had help from Paul Volcker, who was chair of the Federal Reserve, who got inflation under control by raising interest rates really high and causing a recession. Paul Volcker saved the country. I mean, let's be honest. But Reagan gets a lot of credit for pushing the Reagan tax cuts because the Reagan tax cuts cut taxes and increased revenue. That's true. It was true under Reagan. It may not be true today. And that's the point. Again, with the same theme of policies that made sense in the 1980s don't necessarily make sense in the 2020s with the internet and China rising. And there's no more Soviet Union. Things are a little different today. So doing Reaganomics in 2018 doesn't necessarily make any sense, even though that's exactly what Republicans try to do. So Ronald Reagan essentially re 
reformulated what conservative foreign policy means. You know, before that, Barry Goldwater was kind of an isolationist. Republicans tended to be more isolationists uh, during Roosevelt, tended to criticize Roosevelt. Reagan was had the military buildup. I'm going to build up the military. I'm going to cut taxes. I would even say that Reagan's foreign policy was a bullying foreign policy. And bullying, again, it made sense when you had the Soviet Union to deal with. But when Bush tried it later with Iraq or Trump tried it later with Canada, it didn't necessarily work quite as well, right? The other problem was, you know, the Reagan ideology, again, it, it solved the tr problems of the 80s, but it created new problems. It's actually an incoherent strategy. High government spending and low taxes. What does it lead to? Massive deficits, right? So now we already talked about the Clinton administration and the McCain versus Bush fight where McCain says we shouldn't cut taxes like this. We should reel in corruption and we should not pay so much homage to the religious right because they're a problem, right? Well, he loses that battle. So now George W. Bush comes in and he's the divider. He cuts taxes. He wages a bullying, stupid war in Iraq and then screws it up. He pushes anti-intellectualism with simple answers to very complex problems, right? And it leads to a really terrible situation, right? The Bush administration was, I believe, the worst in history until the Trump administration. I mean, name the things that Bush inherited, the surplus, the peace, the relative social peace in the country and all the things that he brought us, the financial crisis of 2008, the Iraq and Afghanistan failed wars, the $15 trillion deficit, the rising inequality, the total lack of action on the major environmental issues, whereas even his father, uh, you know, pushed the Montreal Protocol to get ozone under control. I mean, whereas Reagan was a deregulator. I mean, it was really the Bush administration was the worst example of putting into place the ideology of the founder when it really is not appropriate anymore. And it's really not surprising that a man of such low intelligence would do that. During the divider's time, there are events that occur, but a better man would have handled the situation better. Remember the Pennsylvania coal strike that Teddy Roosevelt handled so well, or the Colorado labor wars? They happened, you know, and, and he was able to solve them, you know, a better president would not have responded so stupidly to 9-11. And John McCain said so at the time. John McCain gave famous speeches very early, says we're not doing Iraq right. We need to get rid of Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense. Bush invaded Iraq. I don't believe McCain would have invaded Iraq. McCain ultimately did vote for the war in Iraq, but I do not believe McCain would have, would have invaded Iraq. And if he had invaded Iraq, he would not have managed it so stupidly. You know, there were events that happened under Polk, Texas and Oregon, right? Polk managed those. He just failed with the veto of the internal improvements bill. The domestic riots under LBJ, the Vietnam Tet Offensive. I mean, events happen. A better man than Bush would have responded to 9-11 correctly. This is why Obama had such challenge because he didn't realize he was acting in the Reagan era. He was trying to be a founder when that was not his time. So when he says, I was 10 years too early, he's right for the wrong reason. If he had asked me, should I try to push these big social welfare programs and this big change during the Reagan era? I would have told him, no, you got to pursue a more Clinton style activity where you try to be moderate and you try to reach over and get the Republicans to help you. Now, people would say, well, the Republicans didn't want to help him. And I would dispute that, but that's a topic for another day. But yes, now we get to the declinist. Trump, he is the embodiment of the worst of the Republican Party. I mean, that's obvious, right? He's the natural heir to the anti-intellectualism, to the bullying of George W. Bush, to the stupidity, uh, to the incoherence of high social welfare spending, cutting taxes for the rich, blowing up the deficit, 
racist elements, which are always there in the Republican Party, but clearly he's the embodiment of it. The the exacerbation of the culture war, the alliance with the Christian right. He is the embodiment of the anti-McCain. And so it's not surprising that McCain has emerged as his great antagonist today. And so, yes, what happens after the, after the declinist? A great national crisis. It could take any forms. We don't know exactly what forms it will take. Will it be economic and our debt eventually catches up to us? Will it be when all the baby boomers retire and double the national debt and suddenly there are no young people anymore? Will it be when China eventually decides they're mad about the trade war and calls in our debt? Will it be a civil war between the urban and the rural areas? Will Putin do something? I mean, we just don't know. What, But I'm predicting right now, and it's sad to predict this, but unless we do something, Trump will usher in a great crisis. And then what happens after that is a new founder, and hopefully it'll be a good founder like Lincoln or Roosevelt, even though it could be a bad founder like Jackson. Something will follow Trump, but we do not yet know its character. What our next decade looks like depends on how well we learn from history. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Demo Crises podcast. And remember, the difference between impossible and possible is one. For more content like this, we'd be grateful if you did at least one of three things. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, or donate to us on Patreon. Demo Crises is hosted by me, Rob Cohen, and produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo. Goat Rodeo.